Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Lin. Hello, and welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the official podcast of the IASLC. I'm Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. In this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, we'll discuss some of the major data on metastatic non-small cell lung cancer presented at the 2023 ESMO meeting in Madrid, Spain. Joining me are two expert thoracic oncologists to give us their perspective. First, Dr. Noemi Reguart, Clinical Professor at the University of Barcelona, Coordinator of the Thoracic Oncology Unit at the Hospital Clinic Barcelona. Noemi, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Stephen. Good night. And I'm also joined by Dr. Zosha Piotrowska, thoracic medical oncologist at Massachusetts General Hospital, assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Zosha, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Well, well, let's just, let's just jump right into one of the big presidential presentations uh, and the Mariposa trial. We've been waiting for these results after hearing the press release, and we saw these on the big stage. Zosha. Can you remind our listeners what Mariposa showed? And, you know, also since you were the discussant for this abstract, where does this regimen fit into our treatment algorithms? Yes, it was indeed a very exciting ESMO with many large randomized studies. Many of them were positive, and, and Mariposa was one of those. So Mariposa was a randomized phase three trial for classic patients with classical EGFR mutations, uh, the XN19 deletions or L8-5-R mutations. And the study was evaluating a new combination in the first-line treatments for patients with advanced uh, classical EGFR mutation positive lung cancer. So in the study, patients were randomized to the experimental arm, which was the combination of amivantamab, a bispecific antibody targeting EGFR and MET, which may sound familiar as in many parts of the world, it's approved for patients with EGFR exon 20 insertions. But here, amivantamab was tested in combination with lazertinib, a third-generation EGFR inhibitor similar to osimertinib. Uh, as well as uh, arms including the control arm of osimertinib monotherapy or elizertinib monotherapy arm. This was a very large study with more than 1,000 patients randomized to the three arms. And we saw that the study met its primary endpoint of progression-free survival by blinded review when looking at the amivantamab lizertinib arm versus osimertinib. So we saw that there was about a seven-month improvement in median progression-free survival, 23.7 months in the combination arm versus 16.6 months in the osimertinib arm, translating to a PFS hazard ratio of 0.70. We saw that the two-year landmark PFS was also improved from 34% with osimertinib to 48% with amivantamab lizertinib. And we saw there was a um, one slide just showing that the lizertinib arm of the study performed very similarly to osimertinib. Median PFS was 18.5 months with lizertinib, 16.6 months with osimertinib. So I think really overall just confirming that these two TKIs are quite similar. A unique feature of the Mariposa trials was that these uh, all of the patients were required to have serial brain MRIs regardless of presence or absence of prior brain metastases. I think this is really important as it will allow us to carefully evaluate the impact of these new regimens on CNS disease, but we also have to acknowledge that this may impact a PFS endpoint as patients with small asymptomatic brain metastases 
will be identified earlier in the study design that includes serial brain MRIs than they would in a study where MRIs are done at the investigator's discretion. So in order to estimate the impact of those serial brain MRIs on the study outcomes, they also presented a, an analysis looking at the extracranial PFS outcomes here, where patients who had CNS only first progression events were censored. And we saw in the extracranial PFS, there was a consistent benefit with a PFS hazard ratio of 0.68, favoring the amivantamab lizertinib uh, arm with a median progression-free survival of 27.5 months versus 18.5 months. In an interim overall survival analysis, the overall survival hazard ratio was 0.80, but this did not yet meet statistical significance at this time point. The two-year overall survival rate did seem to be improved a little bit with amivantamab lizertinib, 74% versus 69%. So all of those were positive outcomes, but this was balanced with the fact that we did see that the combination of amivantamab lizertinib led to higher rates of toxicities compared to osimertinib alone. We saw in particular higher rates of dermatologic toxicities that we see with amivantamab and infusion-related reactions in particular. There were more grade three adverse events with the combination, 75% versus 43%, and a higher rate of treatment discontinuation due to treatment-related adverse events, which occurred in 10% of the patients on the combination, and only 3% of those on osimertinib. And the last point to make is that there's a unique toxicity with the amivantamab lizertinib combination, which is the increased risk of venous thromboembolism. This occurred in 37% of the, percent of the patients on the combination arm versus 9% on osimertinib. And these occurred largely in patients who were not on anticoagulation. And, and the authors noted that prophylactic anticoagulation is now recommended for the first four months of treatment for the patients on this combination regimen to mitigate that risk. So I think to summarize, these data certainly demonstrate a clinically meaningful improvement in progression-free survival for our newly diagnosed patients with EGFR mutant lung cancer. And the Mariposa regimen really represents another option that we have to consider. But the benefit has to be weighed against these increased toxicities, particularly as this is a regimen that patients are likely to receive for a long time, in many cases for two years or even longer. And so I think we'll really need to better understand the quality of life impact of this combination to understand its role in the clinic. You know, I think the point you made about MRI is, is really important. I think that's the smart way to do this type of a study, but you don't want to penalize a trial for doing that. I, I really think that all of the studies in this space, whether it's HFR, ALK, need to be incorporating MRI. I mean, is that how we should be doing things now, Zosha? Absolutely. I think, you know, one thing that was striking to me from Mariposa and some of the other first-line studies done in this space is that consistently about 40% of these patients at the time of diagnosis are find, found to have baseline brain metastases. And so this is an incredibly common problem, whether patients are diagnosed with CNS mets at that initial presentation or whether they develop CNS metastases later on during treatment. And so understanding the impact of these new regimens on CNS outcomes is critically important. And I completely agree. I think this should be a standard and not an exception and, and something that we should strive for in future studies. So much better PFS here. We're clearly making advances, but it comes at the cost of, you know, there's a financial cost, there's the toxicity cost, but also this sort of medicalization of the patient where you know, with osimertinib or TKI alone, you take that pill at home, you come in periodically, but now you're sort of tethering the patient to an infusion center, getting infusions every two or three weeks. Noemi, we saw from Mariposa that adding amivantamab to a third-gen TKI improves PFS significantly. How do we apply this to our patients? So, well, this is a positive trial. This is for sure. Um, though, I have to say that osimertinib monotherapy has been our standard of care for years, 
and continues to be a good option. Uh, patients are on treatment approximately two years, but most importantly, the tolerance is excellent and they are, have really good quality of life during treatment. So we love osimertinib and patients. I think they also do. But now we do have a new combo, laser and Emmy, that provides, as uh, Sophia said, clinically meaningful disease-free survival advantage with a clear improvement of seven months in disease-free survival, a consistent benefit in patients with and without brain metastasis, more durable responses, favorable trend in overall survival in the early interim analysis, but a significant increase in adverse events. So the question is whether we must prioritize this combination right now for our patients or there's still room for individualization. Yeah, we would like to know where this makes the biggest impact. And hopefully in the, the months to years that follow, we'll, we'll have a little more clarity there. Um, you know, Noemi, just sort of looking back over 2023, we saw a few months ago that the addition of chemotherapy also improved PFS. That was the FLORA-2 trial. So let me ask you, if if we remove access barriers, if all these regimens are approved, we have FLORA, FLORA-2, Mariposa, how do you choose uh, be between all these regimens? Well, this is the $1 million dollar question, Stephen. <laughs> so I would say now we have two alternative combos. And just to remind people, uh, both Osikemo and Latherami have achieved quite consistent results. Uh, in the FLORA trial, we have eight months uh, improvement in disease-free survival. And in the Mariposa trial, we have seven months improved in disease-free survival. So uh, what it's clear also is that, and it's very important, is that both studies have also provided evidence of consistent benefit of a monotherapy in patients with brain metastasis. And this is very important. The most important thing though is the safety profile. And this is one of my primary concerns. In the Mariposa trial, as Sophia said before, two thirds of the patients had, had grade three or higher adverse events. And several of those toxicities were very unkind for patients such as stomatitis, paronychia, or rash. And pathologic side events, on the other hand, are less uncomfortable for patients, isn't it? And it is important that we, um, we are doing treatments that are um, maintained at the long term. So it's very important to have a good uh, toxicity profile for, to maintain this quality of life for patients. And an additional consideration to remember is the increases rates of venous thromboembolism observed in the Mariposa trial that need preventive anticoagulation. So taking all in consideration without mature data on survival right now, I could say that I could consider osimertinib monotherapy or maybe OSI plus chemotherapy in young patients, especially in those with clinical factors that are associated with poor prognosis, including brain metastasis or maybe exon 21 mutations. And I would spare Emmy combo for second line setting. I think that the survival, uh, you know, if we see a, the overall survival trend become significant, I think that that might change the calculus a little bit. 
but I agree it's a difficult decision. Zosha, when these regimens are available, how are you going to choose which regimen for, for which patient is best? Yeah, I think it's a it's an increasingly complex question, and I completely agree with your point about survival. I think that you know among these options right now, you know we really have, as as Noemi pointed out, comparable outcomes. And but I think if one of them shows a survival benefit, that certainly will be a very important factor in the decision making. For now, I completely agree with the points that Noemi made. I I think that you know some of the data that we saw with CNS outcomes in particular from the Flora two trial that were pre- presented at ESMO by Dr. Planchard, showing higher rates of intracranial response with the addition of chemotherapy to osimertinib, may make me favor that regimen, the osimertinib and chemotherapy regimen in patients with who present with, for example, high burden of CNS disease at initial diagnosis. But for most patients, I, I agree. I think, you know, given the toxicity concerns and until we have more survival data, I think osimertinib monotherapy still remains a very reasonable choice. And I, I think the other piece that's missing so far are biomarkers to tell us, one, are there patients that are likely to do the be the patients who do well on osimertinib monotherapy for a long time and really don't need an escalation of therapy versus those that are likely to have a poor outcome where we really need to think about these combinations? And then two, how do we select between these combinations? Are there patients where the amivantamab-based approach may have particular appeal, or are there patients where chemotherapy may be better suited to the biology of their cancer? And we really don't have that data. I think both of these trials collected both plasma and tissue samples before and after treatment, or at least I hope so. And I hope that in the future, we'll see more analyses of those types of biomarkers to help us select, make make more informed decisions in selecting between these regimens. And, you know, this is going to be a, a long discussion with all the patients and really a shared decision-making model. Uh, we, we want to gather more information. We have a little bit more from this meeting. Noemi, in, in the same presidential session, we saw our colleague, Dr. Antonio Passaro, present Mariposa 2. Could you summarize some of those findings for us? Absolutely, Stephen. So the Mariposa 2 was the second trial that was presented, randomized trial also with the use of amivantamab in combination, but in this case for patients after progression uh, to osimertinib in the second line setting. So it is a phase three study of ami plus chemo uh, plus or without lathertinib versus chemotherapy alone. It includes patients with sensitive ECFR mutations, exon 19 or 21. During the study, uh, the combination of AMI, lather, and chemo led to notable hematological, hematologic toxicities. So this ARM regimen was modified to start lathertinib after carboplatin completion, and they focused on the AMI chemo versus chemo ARM. The study was positive, and the combination of amivantamab plus chemotherapy improved progression significantly, significantly improved progression-free survival with hazard ratio of 0.48, median progression-free survival of 6.3 months versus 4.2 months, one-year progression-free survival of 22% versus 13%, and also an improvement in overall response rates, 64% versus 36% compared to chemotherapy alone. There was a consistent progression-free survival benefit of AMI and chemotherapy across all subgroup analysis. And at the time of that checkout, 
early interim analysis of overall survival show no significant differences in overall survival with hazard ratio of 0.77. Importantly, there was more toxicity with adding amivantamab, grade three or, 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 or higher adverse events, adverse events were observed in 72% versus 48%. Also, discontinuations of all therapy were higher, 11% versus 4%. And uh, the incidence or rates of thromboembolisms were also higher with the exploratory arm of Amichemo, 10% versus 5% with chemotherapy alone. A lot of interesting things in, in this study. Zosha, uh, what's the significance of this data? I think these data were really interesting, I think, for a number of reasons. You know, first, I think it, the study clearly showed that adding amivantamab really with or without lazertinib can improve outcomes compared to chemotherapy alone in the post-TKI setting. And that's very important. In particular, I was surprised to see that the response rate was so much higher, really nearly doubled with both of these combinations compared to chemotherapy alone. And I think that sometimes is very important in the clinic. But again, as, as Noemi pointed out, we also have to acknowledge that these combinations came with much higher toxicities, particularly with the four drugs, which led to this modified regimen where lizertinib is now being evaluated as something added after the carboplatin is complete. But even with amivantamib chemotherapy, we saw that the combination of the dermatologic toxicities and infusion reactions coupled with the hematologic toxicities of chemotherapy can be tough for some patients. I think that the um, CNS outcomes and intracranial PFS data were really intriguing. You know, the CNS outcomes with respect to intracranial progression-free survival seemed to be quite comparable when you looked at amivantamab chemotherapy and amivantamab lazertinib chemotherapy, which Dr. Pissarro pointed out in his presentation raises the very interesting question of whether lazertinib is needed here. And I think it demonstrates that in amivantamab, which is an antibody-based therapy, which we wouldn't have predicted to have much CNS penetration does seem to add CNS activity to chemotherapy even in the absence of a TKI. And I think in some ways that's a bit of a paradigm shift from a frame from a framework where we would have thought that that CNS penetrant TKI was really critical to CNS outcomes here. And I think it may inform how we think about TKI-based chemotherapy combinations in the future as well. So what's missing, I think, again, from these data is, is a biomarker to help us select those patients who are most likely to benefit. And again, I, I think that this is going to be a really important analysis of both Mariposa and Mariposa 2. Um, but for now, I think that, you know, AMI chemotherapy, again, acknowledging the increased uh, toxicities and, and acknowledging that this is going to be a case-by-case -case discussion and shared decision-making in the clinic, I think it may be particularly appealing for patients with a high disease burden after TKI progression, again, acknowledging that high response rate. And for those with CNS progression on osimertinib, which is really a challenging problem, you know, treatment options for patients who have disease progression in the CNS after a CNS penetrant drug like osimertinib have been so far quite limited. And so I think this combination may have a particular appeal there as well. Noemi, what do you make of the, the CNS data that Antonio presented? Well... I just want to echo Sophia's words. Um, I think the data is really encouraging. I think it's very important because the results of the Mariposa 2 trial reinforce the observations of the Mariposa trial and provide more evidence suggesting the activity of amivantamab in um, the CNS. This is very important. We also saw this data with the combination of chemotherapy in the first line setting with osimertinib. So it's really good to see that we have uh, combinations that are more active in the brain and can provide this 
protection that we need for our patients. You know, I, I would not have predicted this. And as you both mentioned, I, I sort of felt that TKI would be necessary to maintain CNS control. So seeing that that it wasn't, that was quite surprising, uh, but in a good way. And you know, the CNS is a very important space. We have to make sure that we, we can treat cancer when it spread to the brain, but also maybe prevent cancer from moving to that space. We saw a lot of other CNS data at ESMO. Uh, two other abstracts sort of similar. Dr. Melissa Johnson presented some data showing the intracranial efficacy of patritimab deruxtecan. That's the HER3 antibody drug conjugate in EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, those data from the Herthina Lung 1 study. In patients who did not have radiation, the intracranial response rate was 33%. The median intracranial duration of response, a little over eight months. Uh, in the same session, Dr. David Planchard from Gustave Roussy presented pooled analysis from Destiny Lung 1 and Destiny Lung 2 on HER2 DXT or uh, Trastuzumab DXT again. Their intracranial response rate of 50% and 30% across doses. Zosha, do these data surprise you? Great question. And I think the short answer is yes, that they did. And and I think similar, picking up on the theme that we just discussed with Mariposa too, I think what we're learning now from all of these studies is that, you know, drugs that historically we wouldn't have thought of as being very likely to have significant CNS penetration based on their structure, based on their mechanism of action, whether that be an antibody or an antibody drug conjugate may have more CNS activity than we might've predicted. And I think this is something that we've started to see, to see and hear about in our colleagues with um, from other disease types with ADCs, for example, in breast cancer. But it's really great to now see more robust data showing this in patients with small cell lung cancer. So I think as we go forward, we can start to expect that ADCs, whether trastuzumab deruxtecan for HER2 mutant lung cancers or petrutumab deruxtecan for the EGFR mutant lung cancers, may have some CNS activity, and that may affect how we think about, you know, how we treat these patients. It may now be reasonable based on these data to treat patients, for example, with small asymptomatic CNS metastases with an ADC, whereas previously we might have considered radiation up front. But I think we'll have to watch these patients very closely, monitor the CNS closely with MRIs. And, and very importantly, I think we have to follow these patients together with our radiation oncology colleagues as we're still learning how to make decisions about which lesion, lesions can be treated with a systemic therapy like an ADC and which might need upfront radiation. So I think that it is important to, to keep in mind that these decisions may not be the same for a patient going on to an ADC therapy, even seeing these, these CNS response rates than they are, for example, for a patient going on to a highly CNS penetrant TKI like osimertinib or lorlatinib. So these decisions will really have to be individualized based on the patients, the nature of their intracranial disease, and the types of therapies. And again, I think multidisciplinary evaluation and, and following these patients in a multidisciplinary fashion will really be critical. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. We've seen some early data that radiation or SRS and these antibody drug conjugates might not pair so favorably together. But, you know, this was largely, in my mind at least, viewed as a shortcoming of these molecules. And I think I need to rethink that. And I think it really elevates the value of, of all of them. Well, let's move to EGFR exon 20 insertion. It's an important subtype of EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer. On the presidential stage, we also saw uh, Dr. Nicholas Girard present results from Papillon uh, or Papillon. Noemi, could, could you review some of those for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is important because this was the third 
pivotal trial with amivantanab we had in this ESMOD. So sometimes it's very difficult to keep in mind which is the trial you are talking about, isn't it? But this is a, a completely different subset of patients we were talking before. This is in patients with ECFR exon 20 insertions. And this is very important because we did not have any specific targeted therapy approved for these patients. And the standard of care in first line continues to be chemotherapy plus minus immunotherapy. So the Papillon trial was a pivotal randomized phase three trial of first line, line amivantamab plus chemotherapy versus chemotherapy. The primary point was met, it was progression-free survival, and it was progression-free survival was clinically and meaningfully increased 11.4 months versus 6.7 months with a hazard ratio of 0.39. 80 months progression-free survival rates were also improved 31% versus 3% huge improvement, and there was a consistent progression-free survival benefit observed in all predefined subgroups. Overall response rates were also improved by 20%, 53% versus 34%, and also was improved median duration of response, almost 10 months versus 4 months. The interim analysis of overall survival show overall survival benefit with hazard ratio of 0.67, which is significant. And this is it's important to note that 66% of the patients in the chemo arm cross over to amivantamab. So I think these are very important data and absolutely a trial that changes the standard of care in patients with exon 20 insertions. So another, you know, yet another reason to make sure we're testing everyone for everything. These data, I thought, were a home run. Uh, the survival trend, not yet statistically significant, but uh, really, really substantial. And, and I think that's uh, sort of an added bonus, despite the, the high rate of crossover. I thought this was a really impressive result. Uh, Zosha, let me just sort of ask directly, though, are these practice-changing data? I think so. You know, I, I have to say I was quite impressed by the results of this study. And of course, you know, we'll have to see what the regulatory agencies think of these data. But but I, I thought that these were practice changing. I think that the degree of benefit, as Noemi pointed out, in terms of the improved response rate and the improvement in progression-free survival, as well as that survival uh, the hazard ratio that we're seeing at this time point, are really important, particularly in this patient population where we have to keep in mind that we really have fairly limited treatment options outside of clinical trials. And we're used to using amivantamab in the post-chemotherapy setting in, in the United States and, and in many parts of the world. This is an approved regimen post-chemotherapy. And here we're combining it with chemotherapy and it seems to improve outcomes more in that setting. Um, I, I will say again here that we saw increased toxicities with the amivantamab and chemotherapy combination. And, and I think it really will highlight the importance of proactive symptom management and really learning how to manage these toxicities very carefully to help patients successfully remain on this regimen. But I, I think that the leap of adding amivantamab to chemotherapy feels smaller for patients with an EGFR exon 20 insertion, where our current first-line standard of care is already chemotherapy alone. And so you're adding an IV therapy to an already IV regimen. Um, and I think that that's a big difference and, and a big reason why this was likely to be an, an easier regimen to adopt in the clinic. 
Um, I will say, I hope that, you know, the Papillon regimen will be eventually just one of many options for these patients. And I think it's also important to highlight there's a number of new oral TKIs in development, specifically for patients with EGFR, XN20 insertions, some of which are showing pretty promising activity in the later line and even in the frontline setting. And so I hope that while the this regimen will be a first-line option, it does it still leaves open the possibility of an oral first-line regimen for these patients in the future. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I also thought a nice feature of this, which I might extrapolate to other settings, was the Mvantamab after the loading was given every three weeks mm-hmm. instead of the every two. And I think the the difference between Q3 and Q2, it might seem like a small number, but I think that's really important. Absolutely agree. I think that really has an impact on quality of life for patients that extra week off in between treatments. Noemi, do you agree? Is this now the standard of care for EGFRX on 20 insertion? Well, uh, I completely agree with Sophia. So the most important difference with uh, that I see with patients with insertions in XN20 is that uh, they had really poor outcomes with the standard of treatment that we had right now, chemotherapy with or without immunotherapy. So the degree of benefit with AMI chemo, uh, it's huge, isn't it? So in this subset of patients with limited treatment options, I, I I would say I I would say to my patients, yes, of course uh, we have to learn how to manage the toxicities with amivantamab infusions, the toxicities uh, in the related to to med inhibition also. But I think um, this is a new and a really good um, option for our patients. And I also agree with uh, um, what Sophia mentioned before, that this landscape can change in the forthcoming years because there are several tyrosine kinase inhibitors that are under evaluation right now with high activity compared to the first, second generation tyrosine kinase inhibitors and with very favorable safety profile. So let's see, maybe in the forthcoming years, we have several options available for patients with insertions in Exxon 20. Yeah, it's good to see an improvement. You know, as as you'd mentioned, chemotherapy was our standard before this subset, not deriving benefit from the immunotherapy regimens, but now we finally have a first-line targeted option, uh, hopefully approved in the near future. We also saw in the presidential, busy presidential, we saw uh, some data on another subtype, and those were RET fusion positive, non-small cell lung cancer. Our colleague, Dr. Herbert Lung, presented the Libretto 431 trial. Zosha, what did you think of this study? Another positive study in the Presidential Symposium, another New England Journal publication. So this is another exciting data set. So in Libretto 431, uh, we saw randomization of patients with fusion positive non-small cell lung cancers. These were newly diagnosed patients who were randomized to the selective RET inhibitor salpercatinib or to a control arm of platinum pemetrexate chemotherapy, which could be given with or without pembrolizumab. And here we saw that the progression-free survival outcomes strongly favored salpercatinib. The median progression-free survival was 24.8 months versus 11.2 months with chemotherapy. And the hazard ratio was 0.465. The response rate was improved, as you might expect, with the RET inhibitor, 83.7% versus 65%. 
We also saw an improvement in median duration of response of 24.2 months versus 11 and a half months. And uh, importantly, again, as, as we've alluded to in, in other with the other trials, intracranial outcomes are very important here. We saw an improvement in intracranial response rate from 58 to 80, 58% with the chemotherapy to 82% with selpercatinib. I think one interesting uh, aspect of the study was that in the control arm, the progression-free survival was the same whether patients received pembrolizumab or not. Um, I think really highlighting the role that immunotherapy given in combination with chemotherapy has a limited role in RET-positive cancers, as we've seen that it does in other oncogene-driven uh, tumors, particularly those with EGFR and ALK. So I think really you know, emphasizing that when we do give these patients chemotherapy, the role of chemoimmunotherapy combinations is likely limited. But in some, I think the study really reaffirmed what is already my standard practice, and I think standard practice for many of us, which is the use of a selective RET inhibitor like salpercatinib or pralcetinib as an initial therapy in patients with newly diagnosed RET-positive lung cancers. Yeah, it's just a, another home run here. Noemi, do these data change practice for you and, and patients with RET fusions? Well, not really. <laughs> well, that was the basis for the discussion of Dr. Besser, isn't it? He finished the, his discussion saying that maybe this trial was not uh, needed because the reality is in, even in Europe or even in Spain, which is very difficult to, or we are the latest in, in getting the approval for tar- targeted therapies, we had um, we had a permission to give uh, salpercatinib to patients with red uh, fusions in for first line. So this trial, it's not changing my clinical practice, but as Sophia said, it reinforced uh, what I think we already knew about the drug. The benefit it's 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 incredible uh, in progression-free survival, in in response rate, in intracranial response, and endorsed the poor activity of immunotherapy and chemotherapy in 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 these patients. The shame is that we had to run this trial to to allow some countries to get the authorization to receive salpercatinib in first-line setting, and we had to treat several patients in the trial with an suboptimal treatment, which is chemotherapy and immunotherapy. Yeah, I, I mean, we could have predicted this, right? We, we saw from the ARO study with prosetinib, from the libretto trial with salpercatinib, the response rates of frontline selective ret inhibitors are, are north of 80%, and it's exactly what we see here. You know, Zosha, from, from the, the sidelines here, is this a study that we really needed to do? I think I agree with both of you and, and many of us in the audience said that the answer really here is no. And I think Dr. Best made a really impassioned point about this in his excellent discussion. And I think we all agree that, you know, these studies are, are no longer needed and, and perhaps even more strongly no longer appropriate. You know, it's really no longer appropriate. I think when we see these types of outcomes to randomize patients to a chemotherapy control arm, particularly acknowledge that there's a number of patients who go on to that chemotherapy control arm who are never ultimately able to access the the therapy that they really need in the form of these selective RET inhibitors. And that really feels unacceptable in this day and age. I think one point is that we do have to make a distinction between different oncogene subsets in lung cancer. There are those where we have very highly effective therapies, ones with highly um, high intracranial response rates. And here, I think we really don't need these types of trials. You know, we've seen them, the same outcomes in EGFR, ALK, now RET. 
But I think there are other subsets, such as EGFR, Exxon 20, KRAS G12C, and others where the these targeted therapies are active, but their activity is more modest. And I think they're where there, you know, comparing those types of regimens to chemotherapy feels like a more open and important question. And so I think this this randomization question may not be the same for every oncogene. And we really have to think about the level of data that we're seeing with the targeted therapy. But I think we have to really think critically about whether these studies are going to answer a clinically important question for our patients or not. Yeah, I think that's the key is we have to be thoughtful instead of just dogmatic about sort of what's required to really show benefit um, let's let's talk about one one more study in the, in the last few minutes we have here. Noemi, can we talk a bit about Tropian Lung 1? This is a study of the, the Trope 2 antibody drug conjugate datapotamab darextacan. Uh, can you review that study for us? Sure. This is a randomized phase 3 study for patients here without drivers or the majority, I would say, without drivers with advanced non-small cell lung cancer that had been previously treatment. They include the majority of patients were driver negative. They had uh, to be priorly treated with chemotherapy and immunotherapy. And they included a subset of patients uh, with AGAS or genomic alterations that had to be prior treated with targeted therapy, chemotherapy, plus aminos immunotherapy. They randomized patients who received DATO, the Ruxacan, that, as you said, it's a top 2 directed antibody drug conjugate, doses of six mixed kick quotes every three weeks versus docetaxel. There were 30-15% uh, of patients with EGFR mutations. The primary endpoint was met. It was progression-free survival, and in the intention-to-treat population, the disease progression pre survival favored that of the Ruxacan with a significant, but I could say clinically limited improvement in one month progression pre survival, 4.4 month versus 3.7 month with a Kaiser ratio of 0.75. Overall response rate, though, were doubled. 26% versus 13%, and a median duration free survival was seven months versus uh, six months. However, it was important that as exploratory analysis evaluated the progression free survival by histology and they found differences uh, in patients with non squamous histology and patients with squamous histology. The benefit was higher in patients with non-squamous uh, non histology with progression-free survival has a ratio of 0.63, median progression-free survival 5.6 versus 3.7. And in patients, specifically in those patients without genomic alterations, the Kaiser ratio was 0.71. However, in patients with squamous histology, progression-free survival has a ratio was 1.38, so it was detrimental. Medium progression-free survival favored indeed the control arm, 2.8 months versus 3.9 months, and the Hatcho ratio also lower for the experimental arm compared to the control arm, 9.2% versus 12.7%. The interim analysis of overall survival is immature. However, right now it's not significant with a Hetzer ratio of 0.9. 
median overall survival of 12 months versus 11 months, but there is a trend of better survival in non-squamous histology with an overall survival hazard ratio of 0.77 compared to the 1.32 in patients with squamous histology. As expected, neutropenia were more common in patients treated in the control arm. And uh, however, in the patients treated with datoduruxtecan, also as expected, there were higher rates of typical uh, toxicities associated with the drugs, such as somatitis, mucositis observed in 54% of patients, and also ocular toxicity, which was observed in 90% of the patients. And also interstitial lung disease, which is was not very high, but a bit higher in patients treated with the ADC in 80% of the patients compared with 2% of patients treated with docetaxel. Yeah, so this is a, a little bit of a tricky study, right? It's a positive trial. It meets its primary endpoint, and there are clear positives to the antibody drug conjugate. You're you know, doubling the response rate, and there's definitely a signal for PFS and a trend for survival, but in the non-squamous group, and you know, that's not really the primary endpoint here. It, I think that we definitely learn in the squamous group, this drug does not work as well, um, and you know, there are some different toxicities to think of when, when we think of datapotamab. Uh, the the non-squamous numbers are, are certainly a lot better than the squamous. Zosha, help me out here. What, what are your impressions of tropian lung one? A tricky study indeed, but I think overall, I, I think that the results were fairly disappointing. I think we all have so much enthusiasm for the antibody drug conjugates as a class these days in thoracic oncology. I think we were all hoping that we would see more benefit with datapotamab deruxtecan. You know, I think that the PFS improvement in the overall population, while statistically significant, you know, really amounts to about three weeks um, and doesn't reach the threshold of feeling clinically significant. As as you and Naomi both pointed out, the benefit did seem to be higher in the non-squamous patients, you know, close to a two-month improvement and a, I would say a more significant improvement in response rate. So certainly a signal of benefit there. My enthusiasm for data DXD may be higher in those patients, given that subset analysis. However, as we just heard, this is not an easy drug in terms of side effects. And I, the high rates of stomatitis and mucositis, I think, do have an impact on quality of life for patients. We saw more ocular toxicity and low, but still higher rates of pneumonitis with the ADC, which have to be weighed. So I think at the end of the day, it's always nice to have more options. And I envision that if this is approved, this is a drug that I will discuss with my patients and nice to have in our tool belt of kind of later line options for our patients. But I suspect it probably won't be the right choice for all of the patients I see in my clinic. And once again, I think the the point about shared decision-making with patients will be an important one. Would love to have a, a biomarker here as well to, to really even further widen that therapeutic window. Noemi, uh, some pluses and minus. What are your overall impressions of, of datapotamab in the setting? Well, I'm, I echo Sophia's words. I think we were so excited. We really, we had hopes that this study would be the first one in a long while to actually change the clinical practice because we are in need of more potent uh, second-line therapies. Uh, however, the absolute increase in progression-free survival is just one month, and the interim analysis, the primary and poor overall survival, has not been attained. 
I don't know, even though the trial is still maturing for overall survival, I think there's little hope that they will succeed, succeed in achieving overall survival uh, gain. And I, I think though that the results in the subgroup analysis, although they are exploratory, are interesting and they provide valuable insight for defining patient selection in future trials. Uh, and like Sophia had to say that unfortunately there, uh, there is little chance that we will get an approval in Europe based on the results. You know, there's there's a lot I actually wanted to go over as well. We, we saw uh, Dr. Luis Pazarez discuss uh, tropian lung 5, where this agent was studied in tumors with actionable genomic alterations with some encouraging signals there. We saw uh, really a lot of other studies. We saw osimertinib with the VEGFR2 inhibitor, ramucirumab from Dr. Shuning Li, uh, but but we, we just don't have the time in this episode. So uh, I want to thank uh, both of you. Uh, it was great to see both you in Madrid and to spend some time there and to get your perspective both on site as the data are emerging and here after a moment for reflection. So Zosha, always a pleasure. You're a pro at this. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It's really fun to kind of sit down and review these data after a few days and, and really think about how they may change our practice. So thanks, Stephen. Oh, no, thank you. And Noemi, I always love discussing the data with you. Thank you, thank you so much for, for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you so much, Stephen and Sophia. It was a great discussion. And thanks to everyone for listening. You can download new episodes of Lung Cancer Considered. We hope that you'll tune in on the first and third Tuesday to do so. Uh, thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.